Welcome to Drupal Easy Podcast, episode 224. In today's episode, we have interviews with Jacob Rockowitz about web form variants and how they can be used for A-B testing. Ted Bowman on Drupal 9 changes for info.yaml files, as well as some important DrupalCon dates. So stick around and we'll be right back. Building websites in my sleep, counting content types instead of counting sheep. Where my time's gone, I can't say. I just can't turn around and walk away. MyDropWizard.com if you have a Drupal 6, 7, or even a Drupal 8 site, and you do not want to be the person in charge of maintaining it, keeping modules up to date, keeping core up to date, and all that sort of thing, then you should talk to the folks at mydropwizard.com. They offer basic maintenance plans for Drupal 6, 7, and 8, especially if you have a Drupal 7 site, you should be paying attention to this one. Um, Drupal 7 is going to be end of life pretty soon, and you want to make sure that, that site stays up and stays secure. That's what MyDropWizard.com can do for you. For a low monthly fee, they start at about $99. MyDropWizard.com will help keep your core, Drupal core, and uh, contributed modules up to date. They will help you keep the site online. They will answer support questions for core and popular contrib modules, and they will even perform basic one-off maintenance tasks. Things like fixing up a view or you know, making a CSS tweak or something like that. If you are in the position where you don't want to have to maintain your Drupal uh, 7 site anymore, then you should definitely give the folks at mydropwizard.com. All plans include a complimentary site audit, a 24-hour response time, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. So it's worth your time to check them out. Just go to mydropwizard.com. Ted Bowman joins me for a few minutes here to talk about migrating your modules, or maybe upgrading is a better word, upgrading your modules, getting them ready for Drupal 9. Hey, Ted, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. I assume that you have uh, been deep in core de development land since we last talked. Yeah, upgrade status module, mostly. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but I wanted to kind of give an overview for folks who have custom or even you know, contributed Drupal 8 modules that they maintain um, and talk about, you know, what should they be doing today to get ready for Drupal 9? And we're not going to go too far down into the weed, but we want to cover the basics and there'll be some links in the show notes just to kind of get people moving in the right direction. That sound good? Sounds good. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is the changes to the info.yaml files. And I think you were one of the key people in this change. Yep. I worked, I worked on this issue. Yep. Right. So the idea behind this is that there's a new core underscore version underscore requirement key that is going to be required for info.yaml files for Drupal 9. Is that correct? Yeah, it will be required for Drupal 9 and it will specify what um, the range that, that your module or is compatible with, your core range. 
So it's going to be like a sem uh, semantic versioning um, constraint like you would use in a composer.json file. We're actually passing it off to the composer simver class and just checking to see if you're compatible with the currently installed version of Drupal. All right. So this is, this is something that if you want your module to work in Drupal 9, this is something you have to add to your info.yaml file. Yes, you have to add it for 9, and then you can add it for 8, either to declare um, compatibility with both 8 and 9, or you can also use the new key to specify um, maybe you're not compatible with 9, but maybe you're only compatible with 8, 8, and above, something like that. Right. Yeah. So the, I'll have the link to the change record in the um, in the show notes. But this is an, it's interesting because the core key, which has been around forever, is still there. Right. Yes. So most people have like core 7.x or 8.x or whatever. Yeah. We wanted to, we actually originally wanted to use that key for the new one just to say, well, you can have 8.x or you can have any semantic versioning string in there. Uh, but turns out if you have a module installed, um, and it says 8.x, and you change that to any other value, uh, there's a just a bad bug in core that will kind of like sort of un uninstall your module in a bad way. Um, so it doesn't usually come up because people don't change that core key. But if you were to, um, it would cause a lot of problems. And we could have fixed that in, in core, but of course, if you have an old version of core before we had that change, and you installed one of these modules, it would it would sort of mess you up. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Like reading the this whole change record, it's it's full of caveats, right? Because yes. if you, you know, the core version requirement key is only recognized in um, eight point seven point seven and later. Yes. So you can't use core version requirement to say that my module is good for 8.6. Yeah, and we put um, we actually throw exceptions if you try to do that um, because, uh, of course, we don't want you to do it and think that you're actually, it's going to be enforced when somebody has 8.6.7 or whatever. Um, so if we, if we see that you're trying to do that, we'll say, actually, this is not a valid value because, um, of course, we can't update somebody on 8.6.7's core, we can't update their core logic. So we just have to tell you like, hey, this, you think you're, you think you're enforcing 8.6.7 and above, um, but really you won't be. So we're just going to throw an exception. So is, would you recommend folks leave, you know, if, if you're getting your module ready, mm -hmm. um, let's say 8.9 comes out yep. and you're in the throes of, you know, getting rid of all the deprecated functions and making sure that you're um, that your module's ready for, for Drupal 9. Would you recommend that folks leave the core key in there as well as add the core version requirement key? It, it depends. I, I mean, reading the, the, the change record will help, but also um, the, the parser that parses these info YAML files will tell you actually when that's an error. So if you think about if somebody, if you wanted to say, well, my module is only compatible with eight, nine and above, and you added that to the new core version requirement key, it wouldn't make sense to leave the core key in for 8.x because of course, say if, if somebody's on core 8.7.0, that version of core wouldn't know about the, the core version requirement key. So it would just look at the core key and it would say, okay, everything's fine. Nor would the module work. 
Yeah, nor would module work. So in the case where we know that um, that leaving the core key is going to let you enable the module on versions of core where it shouldn't be enabled, we'll also throw a different error with a different message. So, but you could theoretically, you could write a module that is compatible with, let's say, 8.5 and above. Yes. And also doesn't have any deprecated functions. It, meaning it's also compatible with 9. It's also compatible with 9. So in that case, you would need core, like the core key would be 8.5 and the core version requirement would be... No. So in that case, you can never... Um, you can never have anything besides 8.x in your core key. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So it, your core key would be 8.x. Um, your core version requirement actually, I think you'd have to leave it at the, what is it? The caret 8 or caret 9. And so that, that's going to actually let, let it be enabled on anything in 8. Um, so the only way to restrict it installing on versions of core um, before 8.77, which is when we introduce this key, is to use the dependency for Drupal system. Right, right. Um, so that's sort of an old way people got around the fact that we didn't have the ability to say, I need a particular core key. All right, so let's just make this simple for people. Yeah. Upgrade your modules. Yeah. Get rid of all the deprecated functionality, all yeah. the de deprecated functions. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And then you can just use the core version requirement as carrot eight or carrot nine yeah well usually what's going to happen is if you yeah if you don't have any dependencies usually what's going to happen is you're going to say okay i'm removing i'm getting rid of something that was removed in eight eight uh so i know that or so the replacement was in eight was only in eight eight um so at that point you're going to have to say well it's only compatible with 8.8 .8 and above right that makes sense so do you think, will we start seeing, in, at least in contrib space, um, will there be releases for Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 for contrib modules, or will we see a unified release for both? Yeah, we're hoping that in more cases, people can do a unified release. And the idea there is that right now, 8.8 .8 and 8.7 are supported. When 8.9 comes out, 8.7 is going to go out of support. So um, at that point, you should be able to have a module that is, you know, compatible with all versions, supported versions of Drupal core for 8 and 9. You would have to drop support for 8.7 at that point. Um, but for a lot of cases, that won't be a problem because you would have to have, your module actually would not be compatible with 8.7. So you think um, a couple of years from now, we will see on um, contrib pages, you know, maybe it'll be a seven version and there'll be an eight version that's good through 8.7. And then there'll be another version that's good for 8.8 and nine. Um, <laughs> I'm asking you to, I'm asking a lot. I know. Yeah. So did you say in a couple of. In a couple of years, let's say. Well, in a couple of years, we really hope that people aren't on eight. Yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully there is a version that's compatible with 8.8 8 and 8.9. 8, yeah. And there won't be an existing version that's compatible with 8.7 because that 
version of Core is not going to be supported and will likely have security issues. Oh, that's true. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. We don't want to encourage people to put out releases for unsupported versions of Core and keep them around. All right, so bottom line, uh, go um, add the Core version requirement to your Drupal 8.8 or better modules. And then, or as part of that, use the upgrade status module. Yeah. So let's talk about upgrade status. Give us like the quick, um, uh, you know, explain it to me like I'm five explanation. So you'll install this module and it um, it uses a tool that, uh, is it Matt Glamon made, I guess? Drupal check, I think, under yes. the hood. And it will check to see if you have any deprecated, um, calls to deprecated functions or, or methods. And it'll tell you where they are and um, I think it does a, a link to, to the change record that tells you what the replacement is. Does it do anything automated? Uh, I know there was talk of that. I don't know if that's done yet. There was, there was talk of, I think the Drupal check is the latest version or a future version could make a patch for you. Right. I think that's what um, Rector is, right? Yeah. Right, R-E-C-T-O-R. And I believe, let me look, I'm on the Upgrade Status Project page. Um, yeah, there's some notes and some links about Upgrade Rector, which I does which does create a patch. Yeah. I don't know if it's 100% coverage, but yeah. um, there's a lot of, a lot of these um, uh, deprecations actually have fairly simple replacements. Yeah, so I think most of the ones that that one will be able to do for you are going to be the simple replacements. Sure. So you mentioned you're you're working on upgrade status stuff. No, I meant to say before I'm working on the update module for Drupal Core and changes that it needs to understand all this. Oh, okay. Because if you can imagine, we're going to have modules that your updates may be compatible with um, your version of Core. They may be version compatible with the next version of Core. Um, and in the future, we're going to have uh, semantic versioning for contrib. So you're not going to have the 8.x prefix. You're not going to have the 9.x prefix. Actually, you'll have the 8.x for existing releases. Um, but if you start a new major branch, you're not going to start 9.x major branch. For the, the update, um, st- uh, oh my gosh, now I have the names confused. Update <laughs> status? or Sorry, I, I think it's just called the update module. Update module. What you're working on now. It, is that scheduled for release with Drupal nine, or is that an eight dot nine? Eight and nine. Some of it's some of it's already in eight nine. Uh, re- the idea is that people since L- eight nine is going to be an LTS release. Um, if you make a new release of Drupal core, sorry, a new release of a contrib module, and it's using semantic versioning, meaning it doesn't have that eight dot x dash in the beginning, the 8.9 update module should be able to understand and say, oh, this is compatible with me. Um, I should show this release. Yeah, so there's a follow-up to this. So a lot of people are using composer.json, or sorry, composer, you know, to, uh, and so they often have, you have to put the requirements, say, for core or other dependencies for other contrib modules in your composer.json. So right now you have to have them in both. Um, so if you use composer, 
and you want to make sure that you don't get a version of core that conflicts with a particular module or, or you know, module A doesn't conflict with module B for dependencies. Um, like say you have a web form extras module. I don't know if that still exists. And that is only compatible with web form, you know, version, major version five and above. You have to put that in your composer JSON too, so that under, so composer understands it. But you also have to put it in your dependencies in your info.yaml file or Drupal core won't understand it. It won't prevent you from enabling a module like that. So it's kind of like two use cases right now. There's some people that are using Composer and they would never get an incompatible version, say of WebForm in that case, in their code base. But then there are other people who aren't using Composer. And so we can't assume that... Uh, that only compatible versions will be in your code base. So we still have to have the stuff in info.yaml files to avoid you enabling those modules. Um, there's an issue for a Drupal core that says, well, actually, if you have these require, if you have the core requirement for Drupal core in your um, composer.json, then we won't force you to also put that in your info.yaml file. So it would, it wouldn't accept both of them. But it would look and say, okay, you're obviously trying to use Composer for this kind of stuff. So let's look there and prevent you from enabling modules that are incompatible with what you say you have in Composer JSON. You know what's wild about all this? A lot. <laughs> well, you've been working on this stuff for months and months and months. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's all the same, right? It's all just related to, you know, versioning and dependencies, moving all of that stuff out of info.yaml and into composer.json, right? Because when we started with Drupal 8, we were yeah. at one end of the spectrum. Everything yeah. was in info.yamls. Yeah. Eventually, we want to make our way to the other end of the spectrum where everything's in composer, the way the rest of the PHP world does things. Yeah. And you've been doing a lot of the heavy lifting to kind of move us as a community from one end to the other. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a, let's just, and other yeah, there's a lot of hard, there's a lot of hard work to hopefully make it easy. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is that right now we're still supporting tarballs. Um, and even though I know you've had people in the past talking about the new composer templates uh, that are in core, but we still have to assume that some people are using tarballs and that's how they're going to use for the foreseeable future. As long as we offer tarballs of core and modules, then we kind of have to assume as far as like dependencies and stopping people from enabling stuff that people aren't using Composer. Yeah, that's a bummer. It is a bummer. But if like, if we want to say, well, we just should assume that nobody's using, nobody's not using Composer, then we shouldn't be offering tarballs. Right, 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 right. All right. Well, I think we covered everything, Ted. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, clearer. Um, one thing about the info, the info files and the new core version requirement, we tried to make it pretty, it fails pretty hard, pretty fast. So for developers, when they're putting the, the values and they're updating the values of that, like Drupal just will like crash. So it's, we're trying to get it so that you don't, it, it crashes hard. So the developer who's upgrading the module will put the correct value in and then everybody else, once they get it, the value will just already be correct. Right. Rather than just giving like a slight warning to say, hey, you might not want to put this value in 
and then have other people on older versions of core kind of be in a bad position. I guess that's comforting, right? It's comforting that the, you know, you will not be able to get very far if you have an incompatible value in there. Yeah. And, and you'll just, you know, you'll just, okay, I'm going to update my core version requirement. Oh, I got it wrong. Uh, let me see what the error message is telling me. Oh, let me update it. Oh, I got it right. Then you're done. So you're recommending people uh, use trial and error. <laughs> well, you can, you can definitely, definitely look at the, um, but there's like weird edge cases that we're trying to, you know, avoid people from getting into, but read the, read the change record. But hopefully if you, you know, if something was not clear in the change record or you didn't fully understand it, there's some exceptions thrown to avoid you getting in a bad place. All right. Very good, Ted. Thank you as always for joining me on the podcast and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Alrighty. Thanks. DrupalCon Minneapolis is coming up May 18th through the 22nd. I want to tell you about a few important dates that are coming up. Friday, February 21st, all sessions will be announced. And then a few weeks after that, on March 13th, the schedule will be announced. So at that point, we can start planning our days and figuring out which sessions we want to see in person and which sessions we're going to have to probably watch online afterwards. If you want to register at the regular price, you have to do that by Tuesday, March 31st. After that, the price goes up. So if you are on the fence about going to DrupalCon, you probably want to make that decision by the end of March. Um, And then just a week after that, on April 7th, is the deadline to book a hotel at the discounted rate. So some important financial dates are coming up for DrupalCon Minneapolis. Put those in your calendar and make sure you make it happen. I also want to mention one other thing that's happening at DrupalCon Minneapolis. It's kind of a field trip that is being put together by the Drupal Community Working Group. It takes place the day before DrupalCon on Sunday. That's Sunday, May 17th. It's going to be a full-day mental health first aid training. We're calling it a field trip because it's not being held at the convention center. It's being held at the facilities of the um, instructor in Bloomington, Minnesota. So we have transportation um, generously uh, provided by the Drupal Association, and we have a discount for the workshop as well. Uh, The workshop is normally $80, but if uh, there's a coupon code that's available, if you register using the coupon code, you will get $30 off. So you can pay $50 for a full-day mental health first aid training at DrupalCon, including transportation. And the plan is, after the training, we'll do kind of a a pay-on-your-own, go out to eat, and decompress and talk about the training after that. Now, this is not a one-off training. This is um, a a, a course that is taught all over the United States, and it's a course that gives people skills to help someone who is developing mental health issues or experiencing a, a crisis. So if you or someone you love or someone in the community um, needs help, folks who have gone through this training can act as first responders and help get the person the professional help they need. It's really important training. It would be great to have folks in our community trained up 
through this course. So definitely consider that um, for the day before DrupalCon on Sunday, May 17th. Uh, in order for the workshop to proceed, we need at least 10 registrations by April 1st. So if you want to learn more about it and register, um, there's a bit.ly link. You can go to bit.ly slash Drupal MHFA. MHFA, of course, stands for Mental Health First Aid. So that's bit.ly slash Drupal MHFA. No spaces, no dashes, no extra silly characters like that. All right, that's it for our DrupalCon Minneapolis update. We will see you there. Jacob Rockowitz is one of the maintainers of the web form module, and he is joining me today to talk about a new feature of the web form module for Drupal 8, which is variants, which uh, Jacob, you wrote a blog post on February 10th about how variants can be used for A-B tests, among other things, and that's something that caught my eye and I'm sure other people's eyes. So let's talk about this whole, like the concept of like, what is a web form variant? Let's, let's set the table with that. To, to step back, like whenever I do a presentation, I start talking about conditional logic. Like that's where you hide and show different inputs based on some other, you know, field that someone entered. What I've noticed is there's a pattern with conditional logic where you want to capture some key piece of information. Like what type of user are you, uh, in my case in healthcare, are you the patient or the caregiver? And that one key piece of information changes the whole form you a lot of elements could change at once and basically your that type of conditional logic creates a variation of the form um, at the same time your pro the way you're programming it is you're basically going to each little input and saying okay if it's this condition show this or not show this the way variants are kind of set up is it's the same concept cake key key pieces of information usually it's one or two it's and frankly I think it's kind of like the audience that you're targeting and the type of thing you want them to complete. Um, the example when I say, you know, audience, I think people makes perfect sense. Patient or caregiver, uh, student or teacher. And then the type, the example might be, you know, if you're doing event registration, you might say an online seminar or an in-person seminar. They're very similar, but then there's a couple of key pieces of information you need to collect based on the type of event someone's registering for. So, but you're collecting, you're collecting the same data data or most of the same data so it's the same form but you want to present that form in a different way depending on in, in the example that you're using the user yep and so the idea with the variant system is just to like layer that on to create your your base form like it will we'll just continue with event registration form you have your base event registration form and then you Based on the context of where you, and by the way, because web forms can be reused throughout your site, based on the context, you could say, I want it to be an online event or I want it to be an in-person event. And I mean, it could even be changing labels, which that is one of the things that very few form builders, including the web form module, doesn't support with conditional logic. Meanwhile, that provides, I'll throw it down, that that provides one of the best user experiences when you can change tailor the labeling of your form to the user you know if you're asking a patient caregiver example um is the patient you know is the patient clinic is, is the patient currently getting care would be for a caregiver and for the patient you say are you currently getting treatment for your illness um and being able to do that helps build a better user experience so this sounds a lot like 
um, in, from Drupal 7 and Drupal 8 for that matter, panels variants, right? Where you're changing, you know, with panels variants, you're changing the contents that's in the panel or panel or maybe even the layout, depending on some bit of information that you have access to. It sounds like this is very similar. Yeah, it's, I mean, I the, the name variant in terms of the way I think of things came from panels and that's where it started. Um, and the idea that you have your master panel or your main web form, and then you're layering on these variations. So is this implemented as a um, as kind of a web form sub-module? No. I, I mean, we could get into that. It's in web form core because it's it requires a lot of hooks into the API. And it also, there's something in the web form module called handlers, which are used to route data to, so when someone hits submit on a form, this handler will route data to an email or you know a remote post and handlers can kind of alter any aspect of a form there's a, there's some overlap between variants and handlers people have used handlers to kind of create variants where based on a condition they're tweaking a form so going back to why it's part of core is they're very similar they need to be tightly integrated into the core of the web form module and i did I originally, when I was scoping this out, was going to use handlers for it. And then I realized that it made a lot more sense to build a dedicated system for it. It makes it a little easier to manage, a little more focused. Um, it also opened up a lot of the, the A-B testing functionality would just not be possible with handlers. And that's very possible with just variants. All right. Let's, I want to table the A-B testing. Talk okay. We're tabling that one. Okay. We're, because I'm, we're definitely going to get to it. Yeah. I want to. Yeah, go finish your thought, and then we'll come back to it. Well, no, no. If we're tabling A-B testing for a second, then I would call the implementation I'm talking about is segmentation. And I wrote this in the blog post where segmentation is where you're targeting specific audiences. You're segmenting your web form to different users. Um, and by the way, that is the use case I needed for this feature. Like, I work with Morris on Kettering. They, let's, I, I can't get into their specifics because this is like their... A, a big thing for them, but but they needed the same form used a lot in many different places and needed it to change subtly in each instance. And they needed to manage it. And the previous way people did this would be they'd copy the same form over and over again. And that becomes really hard to manage. So when someone upgrades web form um, to this, wh wh exactly which version is this uh, new functionality in? The latest one, which I... Uh, 5.9, 5.7. Um, it's still marked experimental in the sense of like, I add these features and, you know, there's a stable release of the web form module. So this, it, the feature needs to be turned on as a permission. That was kind of how I, I, by the way, I felt like I didn't want to overwhelm people by adding this feature and suddenly they're. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So when someone updates web form and let's say they do, they enable this feature for all of their current web forms, um, that's going to be like their first and only variant. Yeah. And they can add additional variants in addition, but kind of like where they are today after the upgrade, that becomes variant number one. Yes. And I did, it was, I struggled with it. Like I did not want to introduce this level of complexity for base, you know, normal site builders. So that's why there's a video kind of walking through it. There's a two-part process. It's, you have to add a variant element to your web form. The reason, and I explained it in the blog post, the reason I chose that architecture is, a variant is a piece of data you're collecting on a, an event. So if you're saying the event's targeting you know, an online event, you need to know that piece of information. It needs to go into the database. So you create a variant element to say, I'm capturing this piece of information. 
And when you create that variant element, then it turns on the variant manager. And the, the example would be the variant element for registration event type would be a type. You'd say, here's the type of event someone's registering for. And once you've established that you're going to make variants based on the type of event, a UI opens up where you can define each one of those types of events and what it's supposed to do. So that's so that variant, that's like a web form element, but that's not something that the that the end user will see. That's just used internally to figure out which variant to display. By default, the end user can't see it, but it's possible to show it to them because there are times where you might want to show that to an end user. Okay, fair enough. And let's see if I can get... And the default way variants work, and there's only one variant plugin that's coming with the Webform module, is it, it just allows you to override any aspect of the Webform using YAML. So it's a little advanced, but it means... So YAMLs are exportable as configuration for people the most layman. Like every single aspect of that web form is described in one single file. And the variant that ships with this feature allows you to alter any aspect of that file. You can change elements. I mean, the most powerful ones that you could change, like for A-B testing, you could change a select menu to radio buttons and see if, which one works better. It's a very simple use case, but powerful. If you do that, if you create a second variant and mm -hmm. you override the label of, like, say, your first field, yeah. if you go back to the first variant and change the label of the second field, does that bubble down to the, to the second variant? Or, like, is it true overriding where you can inherit stuff from kind of the base variant? I don't know if that's even a thing. No. Okay, it doesn't do base variants, but you can have two variants interacting with each other. Um, the example would be you have the type of event registration and then you have your audience. So you could have a variant based on the type of event and you could have it, if you know the predefined audience, you can kind of have those things overlapping with each other. And, and by the way, the example of type of event would be you probably want to change what inputs are visible. And if you have audience, you might change the labels. And yeah, they'll over. And by the way, it, it does support weighting these variants so you can control which one tr is triggered first. By the way, that does get some hierarchical stuff possible. Let's let's pull ourselves out of the yeah, weeds. Yeah, I know. I feel like we, we fell into the weeds <laughs> a little bit. I want to talk about A/B testing for a couple of minutes because I think that's kind of the you know one of the sexy features of this, um, or maybe not features, not the right word, but the applications. So tell us how that would work, and is that measurable? Or you know, let's talk to, talk to us about that. Well, well, let's let's step back. How about you help me out and define A/B testing? Well, you basically you have a form and you want to test two different versions of that form to see which which one um, gives you the results you want. You know, yep. which form has more people actually submitting it? Which which form gives you you know better, more granular information? You know, there's a big difference between a form that has ten fields that ask for granular information versus a form that has five fields that that it's easier to fill out. So you might you know the the shorter form might have more people filling it out, but the longer form might give you better information so mm -hmm. you want to figure out which one is achieving your goal better yeah and i that i kind of had the same definition it's pretty accurate and the only little thing i i kind of when i was researching a b testing was you definitely when you're doing a b testing you want to keep you want to change one thing not multiple things to get a valid test where the example would be yeah you'd want to test a short form versus a long form but you wouldn't want to test a short form versus a long form with different labels you want it, it wants to be a testable tangible result fair enough there are tools like um google and this is why i implement this feature because i have i think it's called google experiments they keep changing the name and it'll do a b testing on a web page and let's use a home page as an example where you have two call out images 
And the way they implemented it is it does it through JavaScript. So it loads a little JavaScript snippet. And when someone comes to the page, it dynamically changes the homepage's image that's being displayed. And then it tracks those results and tells you which one was more successful, which had more click-through or something like that. The problem, that, and why I did all this work was, the problem with that approach, and that's how most people do A-B testing now using Google and other tools. It's like embed a little JavaScript. JavaScript can only go so far. It can't change the behaviors of a form. You have to do that on the back end. You have to kind of, you're gonna, you can change a label, but if you wanna change a select menu to radio buttons, it has to be done in the back end side of things before you deliver the form to a user because you'll get validation. I mean, the technical thing is you'll get weird data and validation errors. Um, with that, let's step back to the Google, you know, like Google experiments. It does a test, it gives you the results and tells you which is successful. And then you apply whatever, if A or B is successful, you apply that to your homepage in the example I gave. In forms, you're applying, you create two variants, an A and a B. By the way, I did not go into collecting this data. I felt like that wasn't necessary. Yeah, but let's step back. The exact functionality is you create your variant. You say, I'm going to do a variant, and I'm going to have an A and a B, and you want it randomized. It's a checkbox where you say, when the user comes to the form, randomly load A or B. It's a very simple you know, random script, and it redirects them to a URL with the variant parameter passed in the URL because that's the easiest way. To, by the way, the reason I did that is that's easy to track. It literally says, hey, this form is loading variant A, this form's loading variant B, and the user goes through and completes it. By using URLs, any statistical analytical software that's collecting that data can give you the results. All right, so you're not so so you're not doing anything with showing the 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 site builder which one is more successful than the other. That's up to the the Google Analytics or whatever tool you're using. Or who, it's really up to the site builder. And you could turn on, if you're storing that data in Drupal, you could install the web form analytics module and get pie charts showing which variant was more successful. And then you could decide from there which one to select. Um, I didn't want to, I wanted just, the key thing is the URL. It's like knowing exactly where they started from and if they completed it. And the the... Variant parameter is passed from the URL, like the main form, to the confirmation page. So you can really get good data. All right. Very good. Um, so I think that just about covers what I wanted to touch base with you on. Did we cover? I know. Did we cover all the like the high points of um, of the variant functionality? Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote the post and I was like, I just want to see what people do with it. Because I had a specific use case and I'm really curious to see how people do it. I mean, I also think there's A-B testing of just some functionality in the web form module because there's a lot of elements available and sometimes we could be unsure which one's going to be successful. How long have how long have you been using the variants with your, with your client? We really started January. It was developed in December. Mm-hmm. We And we did it um, kind of smart. We just... We just implemented it and put it on the site and didn't like start extending it. Like we just did two variants of a form to make sure it worked. And, uh, you know, right now, yeah, the release number is 5.8. And I have a bunch of patches that have been committed to the latest dev to fix little little nuances, little bugs in the variant system. Uh, one I fixed today was uh, if the variant's not found, I wasn't logging that and telling the end user, you know, like the site builder, oh, something's off with your implementation here. 
Um, and it just threw a bug for me. And I was like, oh, we need to address this. Um, so yeah, by the way, it's an experiment. It's kind of funny. A-B testing is experimental. The code's experimental. You know, <laughs> it, you're not making a huge commitment. That's what kind of one thing I will say with variants, which I, I personally like, is it's not a huge commitment. You're applying this configuration on top of a stable web form. You want to turn it off, you delete the variant. Everything works as expected. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. It's always good to have a, you know, an escape chute. Yeah, exactly. Or a backup. I think I mixed my metaphors there. An escape hatch or a backup <laughs> parachute. I think okay. that's what I was going Yeah, for. I mean, good part is I don't think there's much else to say. I mean, there's a blog post about the, the whole feature, and I did a screencast, so it's kind of walking through most of the stuff we talked about, and I just look forward to getting people's feedback. Right. All right. And I will link to uh, the blog post and which includes the video in the show notes. Um, are you planning on being in any Drupal events in the near future where you might be talking about this or web form in general? Yeah, um, I am working on. So I'm going to be at MidCamp and DrupalCon. Um, I don't know if they've announced the I'm hoping to be at DrupalCon. I don't know if they've announced the official sessions, but I'm doing a session, web forms. It's a good plug, a web forms for everyone. The goal of the session is to kind of, I've done a lot of like, these are the latest cool features, and I kind of want to do one that targets a little bit of, you know, the site owners, the site builders, and the developers, and walking through features I like in the web form module that I think people might be missing or not get the most out of, and just kind of inspire them to, uh, you know, build awesome forms. I actually did not include variants in this presentation because I felt like the dedicated blog post was enough and it's a rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) to demo, you know, like in 45 minutes, I could wind up spending 15 minutes talking about it, but there are some cool features I've recently added to the web form module that I'll be demoing. Awesome. All right. Well, I will see you at MidCamp. Okay. And until then, thank you very much for all your hard work on the web form module and thanks for joining me. No problem. Take care. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of the Drupal Easy podcast. Before we go, I want to let you know of some important Drupal Easy training dates coming up. We have uh, online DDEV workshops coming up. They're two hours each uh, on March 3rd and April 7th. And you can sign up for those on DrupalEasy.com. I will be at MidCamp in Chicago on March 18th, teaching a full day of Composer Basics. So join me there for some fun. And I'll also be at DrupalCon Minneapolis on Monday, May 18th, teaching a full-day workshop on Drupal 8 Module Development Basics. So if you are in uh, need of Drupal training, be sure to check those out. I do want to tell you about one other workshop. It's not really technical training. It's mental health first aid training. And as part of my role on the community working group, we have organized a full-day mental health first aid uh, workshop the day before DrupalCon Minneapolis. So that would be on Sunday, May 17th. The cost is only $50. There is actually a $30 coupon code that gets you um, from the $80 regular price down to $50. Transportation will be provided to and from the workshop on Sunday, May 17th. If you're interested in learning more about that, I have a quick bit.ly link for you. So that's bit.ly slash Drupal MHFA. So bit.ly slash Drupal MHFA. No spaces or dashes in Drupal MHFA. 
and we'll see everybody on the next Drupal Easy podcast. See ya!